Hello everyone and welcome to the Institute for Government for this launch of the IFG Academy and our event which is going to explore the question, what do you need to know to work in government? Uh, I'm Hannah White, I'm Director of the Institute. Now, we've launched the IFG Academy uh, to expand the work that we do to work with ministers, civil servants and others who are in and around government uh, to give them the knowledge and the skills they need to work effectively in government. Whether it's ministers who are be becoming ministers for the first time or changing role, whether it's non-executives on government boards, public appointees, or indeed special advisors, uh, many of the most senior people in government are expected just to, to come in and know what to do on day one and have relatively little support given the significance of the roles they perform. So the questions we want to explore today, why uh, has Westminster been so reluctant to support people at the top of government? Where does the attitude that support is unnecessary stem from? What can be done to change this culture? Um, and what kinds of support would be most beneficial for people working in and around government? And to discuss these questions, do you just come in and find a seat? Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by an expert panel with years of experience between them uh, in different aspects of uh, the heart of government. So we have Philip Rycroft, who is a former permanent secretary uh, of the Department for Exiting the EU. We have Salma Shah, who's a former special advisor to Sajid Javid. We have David Gork, former cabinet minister, and Tim Durrant, my colleague, who's an associate director here at the IFG. Uh, so we're going to have a discussion between the panel to start with. Then I'll open up uh, to questions from the floor, and anyone watching online can send in questions via Slido. Uh, we'll be tweeting the event from our IFG events account using the hashtag IFG Academy, so please feel free to use that. And we will be posting a video on our website uh, within 24 hours, so if you wish to watch the event back or you're unavoidably called away, uh, don't worry, you will be able to uh, catch up at your leisure. So I'm going to start with you, David. Um, you entered government in 2010 and then went into uh, the cabinet in 2017. How did you get up to speed with being a minister and what support did you get and would you have liked more? I think I was rather fortunate um, in the sense that my ascent up the ministerial ladder was quite leisurely um, we're, and the, the rungs of the ladder were quite closely spaced. Um, so I, I, I was fortunate in that I had um, shadowed my first job uh, for three years in opposition. So that, that, that is immensely helpful and obviously not everybody gets that luxury. Um, and then uh, after six years I moved to another job in the same department, so moved to becoming Chief Secretary to the Treasury, which meant I was at that point attending Cabinet. So I was able to sort of get used to attending Cabinet meetings as well. Chief Secretary to the Treasury is a tremendous education uh, for everything else that goes on in government. Shouldn't be underestimated how helpful that is. And then after a year, I became a Secretary of State, first at DWP, and then after seven months uh, at the MOJ. Uh, by which time I was a fairly experienced minister. So I, I think in my personal experience, I was helped by the fact that I got quite a lot of experience, but it sort of accumulated quite slowly. Um, but there are, I mean, my, my view on this is there's only so much that you can properly be taught. Um, 
anyone who is going to become a minister ought to be a bit of a self-starter anyway and, and, and should, be, yeah, should be reading the books, which is what I did, and talking to people who've had the experience, which is what I did. Um, and, then you, and then you kind of, you get quite a long way there. I was also fortunate in that uh, my first private secretary was very good at saying, what are your priorities? Now, having, having read the books, I knew that I needed to think about my priorities, but that sort of sense, and I think this is the most important help. Well, I think there are two things where ministers could do with, a, with, with, with help. One is making sure that they've got priorities and they are the right priorities. You know, have they tested them? Are they ones that are not you know, dependent upon the Treasury being far more generous than they're ever going to be? Uh, is this going to be something that upsets the Prime Minister? Um, is this deliverable in Parliament? All those sort of things. So sort of testing that. And then, you know, and is it worthwhile? Um, and then the, the, the sort of second thing is a sort of sense of, you know, how are you doing? And, and that, I think, is one of the sort of toughest things. So it's not so much, in my view, about, you know, all, all the learning beforehand. It is also when you're a few months in going, well, I, am I getting this right or not? Have I, you know, am I any good at being a minister? Because you don't get proper feedback. I mean, you might see something nasty in the newspapers, but you don't get... <laughs> You know, proper feedback, and it's quite difficult to do for various reasons. I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, but I think those are the two things where um, ministers need them the mo need more support. I think regularly. What are the priorities, and, and actually some feedback on how you're doing as a minister? Interesting, Philip. You work with ministers across uh, government in different departments. What are your observations about what support they could have used? Um, to help them get up to speed, particularly in the early days? So it, it, most ministers, when they become ministers, have uh, a set of experiences which are enormously valuable, which is political experience. So as a civil servant, you're obviously, sometimes you're working with ministers who've been around the block, uh, junior ministers who've become Secretary of State, uh, government that's been running for a while, so you've got that context of experience and they're, they're sort of bouncing off each other, learning from each other. But um, from time to time, of course, you get in incoming governments have been not been in power for a long time. So you have a whole bunch of people who have not necessarily had extensive ministerial experience. I mean, I've, my own sort of career trajectory has seen that both in a Scottish context and down here. Uh, and in the case of Lib Dems in Scotland, then down here, and the SNP in Scotland, parties that hadn't been in power for a very long time. But the, uh, you, it's, it's easy to underestimate the value of the political experience. The, these jobs are very political jobs. And ministers who are confident in their political position, know how to handle it, tend to be better at dealing with the policy issues uh, and work better with the civil services. Ministers who lack that political experience and that political confidence can sometimes take a wee while to settle in and can be a bit less decisive than is ideal, if I could put it uh, politely. Um, so uh, from a civil service perspective, like I say, not underestimating the value of that political experience. But the, the other thing that's just worth remembering is these jobs are very, very full on. So once you're in through the door, and quite often people, ministers, don't have the benefit of, of having shadowed it in opposition or any experience, that the, the, the challenge is huge. And if in facing that challenge, you, you're still trying to work out, God, how does this system function? Um, how do I get things done? 
um, that, that, that is asking a huge amount. So I think two things. One is there is, a, there is a very cogent argument, not just for aspirant ministers, but for politicians generally, both those uh, on the government benches, but on the opposition, opposition benches as well, to have more exposure to learning, the potential of learning about how the system functions. Um, I know politicians being as they are sometimes rather resistant to learning, but nevertheless that the offer is there and uh, the expectation that they would take that up. The other thing, and this, this will potentially take us off on a huge tangent, so I won't push the point, but my view increasingly that when in government, um, secretaries of state as the, the head of departments need more support, particularly on the political side, I personally would move into something that looks more like a cabinet system that incorporates the junior ministers with a rather different accountability mechanism for ministers and civil servants. I think the system we've got at the moment is fraying rather badly, um, but I think one of the, th the reasons it's fraying is ministers don't get, uh, it seems to me, the extent of the support that they need, but we can maybe develop that theme. We can have a whole other event. Yeah, we could indeed. Exactly, we may do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, just to move on to a different category of, of people in government. So, we talked about ministers, you obviously were at SPAD. One of the great benefits of SPADs is that they can bring in outside experience into government. But then, in your experience, how difficult is it to kind of get up to speed with how things work inside government? So I think what's interesting about this is that um, any job on the, on the political side is uh, more of an art, not a science. And it is, it is really about how you use those skills and how you add that value to the existing structure. And that's not always obvious. I think um, there's a separate question about how SPADs are recruited and what's the basics of what they know and understand about government. And I think the, the real challenging thing, if I just speak from experience, is that uh, when you go into the civil service, you know, having been a political geek my entire career, um, having worked at CCHQ and been in the party, the thing that I was least prepared for was actually the language of the civil service, which I didn't understand mm. at all. You know, the, the sort of the number of emails that come in, the, the way that they're written. And one of the greatest examples of this I think I can point to is that, you know, you're, you're discussing a contentious issue, uh, it's all on email, you're going back and forth, and, you know, somebody ends it with, happy to discuss. Well, of course, it took me about two years to realize it, it meant just shut up. We're not going to discuss this any further. <laughs> it was just, you know, we, we're now ending the conversation. But it's that kind of, um, that sort of politeness, I think, that exists in the civil service where you almost, you don't understand what's being said. And I think if you're coming in from an, from an outside perspective and you're being plonked, essentially, as ministers are in the top of organizations, there are cultural things that fundamentally you don't understand. And I think it is about being, having an entrepreneurial spirit versus a corporate structure and process. Politicians, by nature, are entrepreneurial. And that's what they learn you know, being MPs. They are responsible for their own small teams representing their constituencies. And it's really on them. It's their faces. It's their names on, on, on the ballot box. S similar to special advisors. You, know, you, you eat what you kill, basically. <laughs> But you go in to departments, and they are corporate structures with stringent processes in which, for special advisors particularly, you don't have a properly carved out role. Now, your informality can be incredibly helpful in departments at times because you're providing that innovation and you're, and you're moving around. 
But learning that, I think, is really critically important. Where do you add value with an entrepreneurial spirit in essentially a corporate organization? Well, a, a corporate organization, a very stringent, hierarchical corporate organization. So I think those are, those are just two things, structure and bound in that culture and certainly language and culture. And, and can that be taught? I think there are things that you can teach people in order to look out for things like that and, and actually help identify um, what kind of character you are to make the best of your skill set within those organisations. Because I think the ignorance of when you go in is really how did this structure work, as I say, and how am I going to benefit this? And how, how am I going to bring <laughs> such an Americanism, my best self, <laughs> to this new role? And you're not, you're not really taught that. Um, and, and you know, you, it doesn't mean that you can take the fun away from the job or, as I say, the informality that can be incredibly helpful. But it does mean that actually you have a better sense of going in of what you can actually do and what levers you can actually pull. Because I think it is very difficult um, to be able to do that from a standing start when you go in and have absolutely no idea about what the limitations are of your job, but actually where you could be incredibly helpful to your minister. Yeah, interesting. Tim. Tell us a little bit about what IFG Academy is uh, thinking about how to fill some of these skills gaps. Well, it's, I mean, just what people are saying now, I think it, it touches on a lot of those things. What we want to do is really focus on the kind of practical nature of being in government. So we, we can't teach political confidence and we can't teach that entrepreneurial spirit. But what we can explain is some of the language that the civil servants use, some of how the system works. We, we understand the system. The IFG has very good links with Whitehall, with government departments. Um, we know the issues that ministers face when they get into, into office. We've got a whole series of interviews with former ministers talking about, well, when I was whisked away from Downing Street from my conversation with the Prime Minister and I arrived in Department X and my officials told me I needed to, I don't know, sign a right round and I had no idea what a right round was, <laughs> or I needed to uh, meet such and such a stakeholder group and I was like, well, I don't want to meet this stakeholder group, but I just went along with it because I was being told what to do by my private office. So we understand the kind of that whirlwind of being appointed to ministerial office. And um, as David said, I think one of the best ways to learn is from the people who've already done it. So through that, through that bank of research we've done into the role, um, we have uh, we sort of built a kind of toolkit, a series of toolkits of different ways that ministers can approach the job. What are the things to ask for when they arrive in office? Um, what are the things to kind of push back on? Sometimes it's very easy for the civil service um, this isn't criticism, it's just how people work, but you know, they kind of do things the way it's always been done. Mm. If, if their previous minister liked, um, uh, I don't know, blue highlighting on their submissions, then they carry on with the blue highlighting. And actually, the new minister wants yellow highlighting. But unless someone says, or well, you could change the All colour the of the questions. pen. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's that kind of thing, right? It's the kind of practicalities yeah. of, this is how we've done it, and nobody thinks to make the change. Yeah. And actually, what, hopefully what we can do is equip the ministers and their advisors to think, okay, well, how can we, how do we want to do this? What are the ways we, we, can, um, we can change things? And I will just say as well, uh, we've talked mainly about ministers. We also work with special advisors. The IFG also works with opposition parties uh, in the run-up to elections and uh, with the private offices, the civil servants that support ministers. So kind of really the whole, the whole landscape, hopefully, and helping them all think about how they can work better together. Thank you very much. Um, David, I just wanted to come back to something that Philip said uh, in, in a sort of slightly offhand way, but the fact that ministers have historically been quite resistant mm. to learning, some ministers, I should say, are, have been quite resistant mm. to learning. And do you think there's a sort of, we find it 
notable that um, you know, in, in lots of bigger organisations these days, even the most senior people see it as their right to have professional development and to, to be invested in. That has never really been the case in politics. The some of the ministers, most of the ministers who do come to us are the people who have most experience of working in those sorts of organisations and, and do come into politics and think, this is really weird. Why is no one telling me this stuff? So why do you think there is that culture? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and I suspect that the, um, the people who are most resistant to asking for help are those who need it most, um, as is usually the case. And I think Selma brings out an important point, a little bit about the kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And, and, and you know, politics is very often about power, and politicians have a hunger for power and a suspicion of anything that they think might reduce their power. And I, I, I suspect, and I think this is the wrong way to think about it, um, but I suspect there's a little bit of a sense of, well, if, if, if I'm being taught, I'm being told what to do, and, and I don't want to be told what to do, uh, and I'm my own boss and, and, and so on. So, you know, big egos are not unknown within politics, but I think also it's sort of structurally, it, it, it sort of leads, leads that way. Um, where I think it is a mistake, and look, there are, there are some things that can't be taught. A lot of this comes from experience, it comes from confidence. Um, but uh, I, 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 you know, that, that sort of sense of, you know, if you are taught more, if you understand more what you are doing, then in fact you are empowered. That, that makes you more likely to achieve things is the way that politicians, I think, should think about it. But yeah, there's a sort of jealously guarding that sort of sense of, you know, will I be in trouble if I you know, don't do my homework is, is something that I think is, is quite strong in a lot of politicians' psyche. Yeah, I think it's in recognition of that sort of suspicion that we, that we put so much emphasis on politicians being able to learn from their peers. It's really the people, I mean, I used to work in, uh, in, in the House of Commons and when I used to accompany MPs on overseas trips, it was always the meetings with, with other MPs mm -hmm facing the same issues that they were, were facing, which really sort of helped them think through the problems they had. So, as I say, that's why we're trying to put a lot of em emphasis on facilitating that, not just sort of coming in and saying, well, the IFG thinks that you ought to do it this way, but actually your, you know, your people who've done this job before you found mm. in this instance or in that, that case study. Yeah, and when I was, yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of probably going full circle, but you know, I, can, I can remember very clearly the, the run-up to 2010, where there was an expectation that there was going to be a change of government and that you were going to have a whole new cohort of, of, of uh, ministers. I think Gerald Kaufman's book was republished. Yeah. I don't know whether there's any plans to republish it again over the next few months. But I'm, although it was you know, written about the 1970s, I found that quite helpful. And I can remember coming here and Andrew Adonis was sort of giving presentations and, and, and what have you. And that was all very helpful, as well as the fact that you, you, know, you had a few old hands who'd been ministers in previous conservative governments um, uh, who you could go and, go and speak to. But I assume that sort of this process is all you know, happening again. But. <laughs> Salma, what's your, what's your perspective on this kind of? We don't we we don't need teaching training. So I think I think that's de I, I think it's definitely right that there is this idea that you are the minister and therefore you are in charge and it, that you don't want to show any kind of weakness in the fact that you might need to be aided a little bit in your knowledge. 
So a big job is normalising that training um, and normalising the fact that actually everybody needs to be able to develop whether they're in the role or not. I think the, the challenge with that is always going to be time because ministers are incredibly time pressured. And as Tim says, you know, the private office has already assumed you know, that this is going to be exactly what you need to do. So where do you find that moment? Because um, don't forget, ministers are also constituency MPs and some of them with marginal seats and they can't avoid doing you know, all that work. So where do you find that time for development? Um, and also, I think to a great extent, there is um, an issue with what are you teaching them about the ministerial role and you know, offering, and hopefully what the IFG is going to offer in terms of the academy, is what is actually lacking in the minister that you think that they need to work towards? Is it structural understanding of Whitehall? Is it key principles of certain policy areas? Is it just basic stuff about corporate management within um, an organisation like um, a Whitehall department? Which I think is also very tricky for a lot of people. I mean, how many people can really credibly go in and run an organisation of thousands of people, core people, in the Home Office. We had a core staff of 8,000 and a wider team of 300,000 people. You know, how, many, how many people in the world have managed successfully that kind of size of structure? So time and identifying really what is that gap that exists. Yeah, in reflection on this, the, the system as a whole is quite a conservative with a small C system. It doesn't change quickly. Procuring change in that sort of world is quite hard work. And it is also can be, how can I put this politely, can be quite resistant to change. And, you know, that sort of sense occasionally that, when I say systems, sort of hunker down and wait for the storm to pass and then things just sort of carry on um, as they did before. In order to change that sort of system, you need to understand it really quite well. You need to understand how the levers work, where power lies, who you need on site, how you mobilise people externally, how you work internally. You think about the role of the Treasury, it's a very, very dominant in the British system. How do you, how do you deal with all of that? People coming in who think, oh, I've got a brilliant idea, I've got this great reform programme, I'm just going to crack on with it. I think swiftly get disabused of that because it is so complex and difficult. And there is a sort of slightly engaging, but I think rather outdated, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't... I'm exaggerating a bit to make the point, but sort of culture of amateurism about all of this. I think both within the civil service and I think in the political class as well, that somehow you can do this without that deeper understanding of how these systems work. And it, you see that in the policy profession, so-called in the civil service, actually isn't a profession at all. I, I mean, I'm talking about my own, my own self here. I now know much more about some of the things I was responsible for when I was in government. I mean, come out of government because I've had more time to think about it and, and, and sort of understand it better. But that, that, that sort of depth of understanding of how do you do good government in the 21st century um, is, I think, absolutely critical. And if the academy can, I think you should bring civil servants in this loop as well, uh, make some impact on that, I think it would be a very good thing. And I think just one final point, I've come back to my point about support for ministers. The thing that ministers and civil, senior civil servants have too little time to do when they're in the job is think. Um, and you come in and you, you say so you've taken on the education portfolio. Maybe you've done nothing on education in your previous life. Most of the people you deal with in the world out there will have been dealing with education for 30 years. This is their life. They've been in it 30, 40 years. They've forgotten more about it than you will ever know. 
And somehow you've got to engage the system and try to make, turn it. And you have no time to do that because you've been sent off hither and thither. Um, every waking hour is occupied. So how do you put support around ministers to give them both on the political side but also that hooked into the system side adequate support to, if you like, to allow them to think? And I think the system at the moment is very, very poor at that. Uh, and so everything done in a hurry, half-cooked, half-baked, and it's not surprising that so much stuff falls over. Can I just say, sorry, yeah. I'm just going to interrupt. So I, t I totally agree with that. I think context is important here as well. Because when David first became a minister, and you, you made the point that you had a, a leisurely progression into cabinet, which is, in some might argue, the right way, the traditional way of sort of going up learning your brief. You know, some of that thinking space is difficult because of the context, because we've had these massive upheavals in, in the last five years. And actually, you know, I don't have an answer to this, but how does one do that thinking when you, you literally don't have the context of the space to do it? I mean, how many times have ministers changed their jobs in the last two years? This is not a criticism. This is just the fact. And we are going to come up against that all the time. So pandemic planning, for example, I would love for you know, the IFG Academy to be able to think about and delve into kind of what are those big trends, those black swan events, how does one think about it, how does one create that culture of learning again, but also that, that structure to say that where is that time going to come from in the event that everybody else's attention is elsewhere, because that is something that the government can't ever help. You know, what happens when the context is completely yeah. shattered and, and inconsistent? Well, yeah, I mean, that, we've had this extraordinary period from, really from 2016 where um, yeah, the government was completely consumed by Brexit from through 2018, 2019. Then you had COVID. Then you had all the events of last year um, and a very, ra very rapid turnover. Um, and that makes it very hard because you know, if, if we're talking about you know, ministers who kind of come in, assess what they really want to do, draw up a plan, you know, doing the proper ministerial job of not just keeping the show on the road, important though that is, but actually also, you know, how am I going to reform this and so on. They just, they either haven't had the bandwidth or they've been moved long before they could do anything terribly constructive or both. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're seeing some of the consequences of that. And just, just to kind of reiterate on, on the point about, I think, there's a question about kind of appetite amongst ministers for all of this kind of thing because they are moving jobs all the time, because there are all of these difficult things happening, because they don't have very much time. Um, loads of people, since we started talking about the IFG Academy, have got in touch and said, well, is it going to cover this? Is it going to cover ethics and standards? Is it going to cover black swan events? Is it going to cover uh, what ministers need to know about the public finances? And we would love to be able to do all of those things. But actually, what we need to do that is a minister who is interested in those things. Does a minister think, do you know what I need? I need to sit down with someone for 90 minutes and talk about how uh, the debt management office works and, um, and, and how, how that affects my role. Does someone in the health department think, I need someone to give us a history of pandemic planning? I don't think they do because they don't have the time or mm. the kind of political incentives. You know, they are, I think, the world where the IFT Academy is sort of, you know, and, and a prime minister comes in and says, I want everyone to go and spend an afternoon with Hannah and her team. That'd be great, right? But we're not in that world. And I think we're so far from that because, um, because the, the sort of the, it's not the way people are rewarded in politics. And it's also just not the way the system is set up to allow them to have that time and curiosity to, to get into it. 
Yeah, I'll tell you what, I think the, the bit that would be most useful would be sitting uh, for a minister to kind of sit down regularly with, a, with an independent third party and maybe their private, you know, principal private secretary or senior private secretary um, and just going to go through, these are, my, these are my priorities, these are the reasons why these are my priorities, this is the progress we're making, this is what we're not doing, you know, an honest appraisal of that and kind of work out are these the right priorities after all yeah. and and just as a sort of reset every every three months or so just for an hour but you kind of need someone to ask yeah. the, you know the difficult question well how is this going how has that changed since then yeah. and a sort of progress check but also a sense check you know is this or am I pursuing something which in the end the Treasury are always going to say no <laughs> um, which the Treasury you know very often sensibly has to be <laughs> Can I just say, there's a really interesting question here that comes back to accountability, which I think you mentioned earlier. And it's that it has to be driven by ministers and special advisors because, you know, because, you know, essentially there's a lot of these questions are bespoke, right? They're not, it's not just that you can just white label, here's a package from the IFG Academy. It, ha it has to be bespoke. Um, but I do think that we have to we have to have a new culture where we are not afraid to get that independent assurance because the accountability of the minister is only ever to the prime minister who's giving them a job and it's never really to anybody else whether it's the stakeholders or the staff or whatever it might be and i think as as standard practice in the way that all public companies have to have their annual reviews and sort of you know put out there what it is that their progress has been i think maybe there's a question um, in government about being able to do that sort of sense of annual review and tracking of, you know, where you are. I, I think Francis Maud started this work very early on in, in 2010. And I think that then supports the idea of um, institutions like the IFG and what you're offering in terms of the academy to say, you know, we really need to get our skates on here. And so that, that accountability question, I think, really lends itself to this. Yeah, that allows me to go off on my hobby horse again, doesn't it? But the, um, that whole, I think the accountabilities are, are just desperately muddled now, but the, you know, the accountability between civil servants uh, and ministers, who's, who's accountable for what, how they're held to account, in, particularly in Parliament. Uh, and I think this is not helpful for good decision making. I don't think it's helpful for uh, the sort of in-depth consideration of the big policy issues that, that governments face. So I think there is a case to say that the, the civil servants have been very much more accountable for the quality of the advice that being public accountability, not just after 20 years, um, so that people can see those debates. We don't have enough public debate about the public policy choices. Mm. Uh, and you know, one of, that's one of the reasons we keep getting this stuff wrong. And you look at the state, the public services around the country, it's not that great at the moment. So that on the one hand, on the other hand, then the clarity that when ministers make decisions on that back of the, the back of that advice, um, uh, that is what they're accountable for. But in that context, ministers having um, a, a, a more support around, I'll keep coming back to this, that the support, I mean, I would fold junior ministers into a sort of a super cabinet type um, uh, operation with special advisors and civil servants so that the ministers, the Secretary of State, um, has that thinking capability right around them to look at that advice, take that advice, to work with the, the external community and then make the decisions from the, on the back of that. I think what we've got at the moment, it sort of occludes the pathway to those decisions being made. 
and makes it very much more difficult for the public actually to make a judgment call who's got it right, who's got it wrong. Can I just say, if you had um, suggested that in government and I was the special advisor in your department, I would be hell-bent against it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you why, because the only thing that scared me, and this is when you'll see the civil servant versus the political bad argument, the only thing that worries me about what you say is opening uh, more policy decisions up to public debate. Hmm. And as a former special advisor, that just fills me with total fear <laughs> because you, you lose all sense of control. And what you then open yourself up to is emotional debate versus what you pr presumably would like is a rational economic debate following certain evidence. And that is, that is, that is always a really difficult space to be. I'm not suggesting that things should be closed off. Of course, it should be open to scrutiny, for which we have a legislative system in a parliament that is accountable. So I understand those, those muddied I, I, lines. But um, that I would definitely be speaking to a minister about killing all that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure which is why it's a great idea. <laughs> I mean, it's nice, though, that, you know, the debate, you just, you know, look at the way that the ideas that keep sort of coming back in because they have that emotional charge yeah. to them and never quite get sort of killed off. Um, and that the, the, the way that the, the political debate or the policy debate sort of drifts away from the system that it's trying to, uh, to support and address and reform. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I, it's maybe slightly countercultural for this with the civil servants saying, asking for more openness, but... I certainly think that the, the, the quality of public debate would be enhanced um, if there was more real-time accountability for what civil servants do. And I think the loss of authority over time of the civil service uh, does worry me this. That, um, and I think we've seen that sort of accelerated over the last little while. It wasn't caused by Brexit, but I think it's been accelerated by that. We get to a point where that advice, I mean, I exaggerate, but is either ignored it's not a good thing. Or you find that civil servants are, be, are starting to, to fit the advice to what they think ministers want to hear because then they, that, that authority, that gravitas that civil servants... I, I agree that's the gone. problem, but w what my fear is is that impartial advice in the civil service is then um, subject to public scrutiny, yeah, yeah. Which, is, which then drives, I think, that behaviour even further, which is we're not, we're not going to provide that sort of ballast of evidence-led impartial advice. David, can I just flip this around for a moment and ask you whether you think that civil servants are well-equipped to help mm. ministers and mm. to, to work with ministers? Yes, I think, I think generally they are. My, my experience of the civil service was, was very... Um, positive, but I think it has become harder for civil servants to do their jobs because of the climate that we have been in. And, and I think Philip is, is, is right, it's not all caused by Brexit, but it's been accelerated by it. And there's been a style of government that I think has made it harder for um, civil servants. I was also I was sort of thinking about this the, the, the other day. One of the one of the challenges for a minister, in, in, in my view, that can be overlooked is sort of winning the um, respect of civil servants. People often talk about how do, the, how do the civil servants kind of persuade ministers to sort of treat them properly and, and, and win their respect. But, but actually, you know, I, I can think of one ministerial position that I had uh, where it was really very important that um, I was getting the sort of truth about a big operational matter, probably work out what it might have been, 
when I think there had been a culture in the past of a great deal of nerv nervousness about sharing problems with the Secretary of State, mm. because you know this was always you had to give the Secretary of State good news, um, and you know the world being what it is, it isn't always good news, mm. and it it took me. I, mean, I, I, I think, I think within a, a few weeks, but it did take a few weeks before officials were sort of willing to say, actually, we have got a problem here, Minister. And um, because previously they just felt that was too high risk. And, and I th the responsibility for that lies on, on, on ministers. But I do think civil servants have got to be brave enough <laughs> to say, you know, actually, this isn't working, this isn't how it... At worst, and even if you get ministers who explode as a consequence, you know the civil service needs to be institutionally strong enough to say, no, this is this is this is how it is. And, and again, coming back to ministers' training, you know that sense of, you know, there will be stuff going on in your department that you need to know about that they don't want to necessarily tell you. Not because they're bad people, not because they're trying to mislead you, but because they're trying to, and you know they're. They're trying to be nice to you. They're trying to, yeah. They don't want to bring a problem to you until they've found a solution. Or sometimes you want to know earlier than that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a, that, that's an important point. And I, I think the civil service has not always been as sort of self-confident as it should have done in sort of saying, nope, yeah, we got some tough choices here. These are the problems. You need to know what they are. I, I think that's right, and I think, as you say, that you know, it's on the minister to set the culture and allow that bad news to be delivered uh, in a way that they won't explode. But it is also incumbent on the civil service to kind of, I think, treat ministers as grown-ups. So, yeah. so there's a phrase that our colleague Kath Haddon uses, which is that a lot of civil servants, particularly private office, see a minister as a kind of child god. So they are both, <laughs> you know, they're all powerful. You have to do what they say. You have to kind of obey every whim. But also, you have to treat them with kid gloves, and you know, you make sure you, they give give them some food at three o'clock in the afternoon if they need to lie down. Then you know, like, and actually, neither of those is quite right. You know, they, they, they need to be they need to be treated as adults, and and sometimes it it is perhaps particularly the private secretary's job, but the civil service in general, to say, actually, minister, this is a bad idea because, or if you do this, yeah. you will annoy this group of people, or it is not the most cost-effective decision, or whatever it might be. And actually, sort of having the, the spine to say, OK, minister, I understand where you're coming from. Here's what our analysis shows. Here's what our work shows, is a really important role of a civil servant. And it's, I think the risk is, happens particularly with a change of government or after um, uh, an election result where there's been a big change, the civil service is very eager to please. They want mm. to impress. They want to say, Minister, I know what I'm talking about. You should trust me. You should have faith in me. And there's a risk that they go too far and aren't willing to deliver the bad news or aren't willing to say, actually, here, I know this is a, a manifesto commitment. I know this is a really important issue for you, but here are the difficulties. Mm. It's not even saying no. It's just saying here are the difficulties. And so it's it's the minister, but also the private secretary, the permanent secretary. They've got to create a culture where people can have those kind of really honest, yeah. open conversations. Well, and well, get and, things and done. you want that as a minister. I mean, I used to, you know, might, might walk in on a Monday morning. I've got, I've had this brilliant idea, um, and okay, nine times out of ten, they were brilliant ideas. <laughs> but, but occasionally, you know, they weren't. And, and and before sort of, you know, I then spend a month thinking of nothing but. You know, my not brilliant idea, you know, learning sort of sooner rather than later, and and, and of course you, know, you don't, you know, the, the sort of archetypal sort of Sir Humphrey, you know, well, that's very brave minister. You, you don't you don't kind of want that, um, but but you do want 
you know, someone to sense check mm. and be prepared to sort of say, well, you know, these are the problems with it. And if, if, if civil servants don't do that, then they're not, they're not really helping them. Well, I was, I was going to say this is where the SPADs come in really handy. <laughs> yeah. Because, yes. you know, and this is why actually special advisors need just a good rapport yeah. with the civil servants yeah. and, you know, need to establish the fact that there isn't an agenda at play. There are just exactly these kinds of behaviours. Yeah. Child God is a new one on me, but, you know, yeah. I, t- <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> yeah. um, but this is where actually that kind of like informality and sort of just smoothing things over and maybe having a different relationship with your minister and saying, you know, in, in rather than the polite terms that the civil service need to put mm-hmm. it in, just say, you know, kill it, this is a stupid idea, yeah. we're not, we're, we can't possibly go ahead with this, and, yeah. and be that direct about it. Um, and I think that is, that is really the importance of the special advisor, is being that bridge between those two worlds, basically. It, and understanding who can do those different roles, right? Because, yeah, a civil servant can't say to a minister, kill this, this is an awful idea, whereas a spy yeah. can, and that's great. Can. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can try. <laughs> should, should feel able to. Or, well, no, or, 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 well, the, the worst of all worlds is if the spad agrees to the minister. I mean, but, but then there is also that, that the opposite, which is is when the minister wants something and you know that you absolutely need to deliver it and then the SPAD has to try and push through in you know, whatever limited power that they have, which is you know, pressing and constantly keep it, applying the pressure in the civil service to say, you know, this actually does need to happen, so we need to find different solutions. Yeah. So you know, it, it, it can go both ways, I think. Yeah. Okay, we're going to move to questions now. I'm going to take a couple that I've received online to give everyone in the room time to think up their brilliant questions. Uh, so we're going to start with a question from Keith Raffin, who says, as a former MP and MSP, I had no induction whatsoever, <laughs> compared to, I understand, the week-long induction those first elected to Congress receive. Shouldn't such induction be introduced so as to help MPs be more professional? And I'm just going to put one second one, and then you can each decide which one you want to answer, which is normally a classic error with uh, politicians, but we'll allow it with, with you. you. Um, there's a question um, from uh, Jennifer Lees Marchment, which I think is probably a question for Tim. It says, do you agree that if you want training to be used and taken up, you have to make it about what ministers, MPs and advisors want and need to achieve their goals, not issues that people outside the system think are important? Do you want to start so with that, that one? First, uh, uh, completely agree. I think that's exactly right. It goes back to the point I made earlier about appetite. You know, we can only... Um, provide stuff through the academy that people are interested in. Um, we, you know, we, we we are a charity. We don't charge for this, but also there are only so many hours in the day. We're not going to work up loads of stuff that people aren't interested in. I think, as we were saying, it comes back to culture. It comes back to a kind of where are the incentives, where's the accountability, and if through this kind of new program of work we can be part of changing that a little bit and embedding the idea that this is a thing that happens, then that hopefully creates more of that appetite and means more people are interested in all of the things we've been discussing so far. David, do you think uh, a week with your newly elected colleagues would have been beneficial? Well, actually, I think by the time I came in, in 2005, uh, we did have that. Um, and possibly there was something in 2001. I don't think my, my party had very many new people in 2001. <laughs> so, so how organised it was. But yeah, in 2005, I think we did have a, a, a week's worth. The, the challenge with all sort of induction courses, of course, is it's all incredibly intense and you're there in a bit of a blur and you, you've just got elected, even if you expect to be elected, and um, you know, the world has changed and you're bombarded with information. And you do wonder whether, you know, three weeks later, how much of it has stuck. 
but but yes, uh, you know, I, th I think I think in more recent years, more recent intakes, there have been uh, those induction courses. I think they're still necessary, even if you don't get everything at the, the at the sort of same time. I mean, a lot of it is very practical stuff about what you do with your office, and you know, it's about expenses and which forms to fill in and so on. Um, and, and you wonder whether there's a need for top-up yeah, sessions, but but. But the reality is that most MPs won't be necessarily that enthusiastic about doing it. So, and someone, do you, is there any sort of SPAD school induction? For oh, there have been so many attempts at SPAD school inductions, and they've all sort of been woeful disasters because you know, you know, SPADs are laws unto themselves usually. Um, there was an attempt to do a SPAD school in the coalition years. I think that was about sort of creating you know closeness between. <laughs> the Lib Dems and the Conservative spouts. I don't think that went down very well. Um, I think there was, there was an attempt, certainly with Theresa May's team, to get um, people coming in and doing more. I think there was kind of like an edict that was sent out that you've got to be a member of the Conservative Party if you're going to be a Conservative Special Advisor. Um, famously, Dominic Cummings had his SPAD school, which I think was more just a broadcast of his kind of <laughs> given feelings on that morning rather than, you know, it being sort of a developmental thing. Um, and to be honest, they're, they're unsuccessful again because of this time thing and everybody on different priorities and different schedules. And that is why. And also that lack of independence. So if it's all about power and where you are in the political pecking order, you know, being traipsed up to number 10 you know, having to go through security, not having a pass and having to wait in reception for ages. That's just time that you, that you don't have. And, you know, knowing that you're going to get some kind of telling off at some point as well. You know, when you go to them, that's normally what happened to me when I went there. So, you know, it's not the best, it's not the best way to set There's up. also a problem with SPADs, isn't there, which is this sort of tension between centralised, decentralised yeah. and so on. I mean, you know, the, the, the SPADs owe their loyalty, you know, fundamentally to their Secretary of State, who they work for. And once you start to bring in SPAD school, does it mean that they're, you know, and, and there have been attempts at doing this. I mean, this is maybe a topic for another day, but, you know, do the SPADs become, you know, they're, they're, they work for the Prime Minister and they're the Prime Minister's representative. But, this is, but, this is, that, but that it can't work. Myth. It's always been a myth. So, yes, you know, you're, you're uh, chosen by your Secretary of State, you're appointed by the Prime Minister, but ultimately you work for the monarch. I mean, we all, we all do, you know, in government, where His Majesty's government. But so ultimately, that, I don't think that's a really... I think they try and centralise special advisors because they want to have that sort of sense of control. But in reality, they can't really see what you're doing in your department. They don't have the ability to reach into the department in the way that they want to. So they try and centralise it and, they resi and special advisors resist. And they can. You know, they can cause a lot of trouble. So really, actually, being able to go to the IFG and have that impartial view and, you know, really actually challenge themselves in a way that isn't sort of dependent on the politics or where you are in the pecking order or anything like that, or, you know, who basically wants to own you, um, is actually quite helpful because, you know, you do have that impartial advice. And, you know, civil service advice may be impartial, but the personalities do jar against each other sometimes. And you do think if there's, is there an agenda going? And I think, you know, being able to learn how to cope with that and deal with that would be incredibly valuable for special advisors. Okay, I'm going to go to the room for questions now. So please, when you ask your question, can you say your name and uh, where you are from? Oh, and there's a gentleman here on the aisle. Um, Simon Webb. Um, yeah, I, I was a private secretary to um, four ministers of three parties and, and liked all of them and had a good time with all of them. So, so 
But one of the things that, that I really enjoyed helping was to get help them to get something done. I mean, what is the point of being there just to keep the show on the road and answer the questions and so on? But unless you get something done, which could be a small war well, at one of those, um, or a big railway, or a major piece of legislation, you know, these are the big projects. And, and I absolutely take David's point. Do you want to be clear in your own mind about priorities and to have tested those? But what I'm getting on to is saying there is then what I now, the world I now work in is a major project. There is now a major project to be done and to be managed. And I think some guidance on how to handle major projects would be an enormous help. Of course, you know, the obvious one is to be clear about what you're trying to do, but the second obvious thing is don't, for God's sake, promise it'll open just before the next election, <laughs> because the press will ask you every fortnight for the next four years whether it's on time, and when it's late, that's all they'll ever remember. Um, Crossrail or whatever it is. They, and, and so there are some tips. And so I think there's a little manifesto in the Major Projects Association, which I'm a member of, has a, has a how to be a minister for a project guide, which I think we'd be happy to share, because there, there's some simple things you can do about being a, a success in driving through a project. And, and, and I just think we should try and teach those. I can ramble on about some anecdotes as, as was required. But that's the central point is I think projects are a special thing which is well worth learning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There was a lady at the front here. Oh, hello. My name is... Can you oh, wait for this? Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Jacqueline Castles. Um, I confess to being a government information officer but not very long, some time ago. They didn't, they didn't sack me, though. It was a temporary contract. <laughs> uh, so perhaps that's the reason I've noticed more and more with ministers, their poor use of language, um, that they... Well, actually, whatever their policy is, however good it is, if they come out... And I'm not talking about content, but just making careless statements, and that becomes the news. I mean, I only mentioned... Um, I quite supported Theresa May, but I wanted to, if I'd been in her private office, you know, I, I wanted to actually strangle those people there because they didn't seem to tell her, look, think before you use language in a certain way. But I can think of countless others whereby they spoil the policy discussion by doing that. But it just seems that they have stopped thinking before they speak. <laughs> and related to that, if I may, I wonder about the government information service because I get a feeling that they have been more sidelined for some time. I won't see who I think did it. <laughs> Thank you. Is there another question in the room? Behind Hi, uh, Katie Thorpe from the Institute of Government, also a member of the IFG Academy team. Um, just to say we also do, this is a little bit of an advert, but we also do uh, work with people outside of government um, on how they can best engage with it, particularly academics and experts. And I wondered if the panel had, um, uh, what do you think is most poorly understood about government by people outside who are trying to engage with it? I don't mean kind of just the general public, I mean experts and academics and people who have a good reason to be talking to civil servants and ministers. Thanks, Katie. Okay, so we have three topics for you all to choose from. Uh, major projects, uh, ministerial use of, of language and, and how they can be helped to avoid uh, pitfalls there. And what do people outside government most misunderstand about government? Do, do you want to maybe kick off on the major project one? I'd be very straightforward. I, I talked earlier on about the, the essential relative amateurism of government. This is one domain where it has got more professional over the last little while, driven by Francis Maud and other reforms John Mansonio took through. 
Of course, absolutely right. We should be doing major projects way better than we do. Um, and you know, there's been shocking waste over time. We've got a long way to go, it seems to me. But in that nexus, you need ministers to understand how to drive these things. Um, you know, it's sort of brilliant if everybody else knows what they're doing, but the, the, the person who's actually got the wheel doesn't quite know which direction to, to run to turn the ship. So I think I think that's a, a brilliant point. I, I think that in terms of um, it, you know having outside of government, I've worked in the corporate sector a couple of times while through my civil service career and since then. Is it surprising how little people, even in the business world, um, uh, but in other worlds as well, how little they understand about how government functions? It is a pretty opaque system, it seems to me. It's why you know, a lot of folk get paid quite a lot of money to do this sort of consultancy advice to, to, help, um, uh, to help unravel that. It doesn't seem to me that it needs to be like that. Um, I, if you think uh, you know, what a lot of people want to do in a positive way is influence government, whether, it's, you know, whether you're in the teaching profession or whether you're in the health service, whether you're in business or whatever. Um, but because it's so opaque, it's very difficult to do that, and, it, and, and therefore the, the, the route to influence um, is a bit occluded. And I think, again, I come back to the point about how do you open that up so you open up the policy process uh, to that sort of influence in a benign way so that people who actually understand how these things work get more of a say in that policy process. It's too close a system that we have at the moment. And I think that has been to the detriment of reform of public services. One of the reasons why our public services do not function at the level that it should function at. And I don't think you need to look hard for the evidence that I'm for that. David. Um, on, on major projects, I agree. I think that is an important area. And, and you know, both you used the word drive, Philip did as well, and it's, it, it's the right word, but I, some, I sometimes worry that the, the word sort of, you know, drive through a project sort of sets up this sort of, um, you know, the sort of myth of the sort of minister who stands there and basically shouts at people and, you know, get this done and slams the table and so on. Uh, and as I think we all know, that, that's not really what driving a project means. And, and you know, I was talking earlier about the, um, you know, the, the, the ability to give officials the confidence to deliver bad news. Uh, and I think that's absolutely crucial when it comes to major projects of, 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 of well, you know, is this going to take longer or is this a problem that we need to overcome? And, and just sort of, you know, being able to be prepared to take, to you know, get that out on the table and not, not, not hide away until, oh, it's all too late, Minister, but yes, we're going to have to delay the end of this project by two years. Um, but I've been promising it be done by the general election. You, so I think you've got to be. Uh, uh, so I think I think sort of teaching ministers about you know what it takes to sort of drive, which is more the sort of methodical, thorough confidence building process. Um, I was just going to. I'll pick up the point about um, what do people outside not understand. I mean, I agree really with what Philip was saying, but very often it's they don't understand the. The politics, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's the fundamental, the, particularly the sort of party politics. You know, well, why are they not doing this? Well, they can't do that because you know, you've got this group of backbenchers who would go spare. Or, you know, why, why is this department not working with that department? Well, you know, there's sort of historic enmities between the ministers or, or institutional problems. But very often it is the sort of, it's just the sort of raw politics. Uh, and I think 
you know, for people outside, that is very hard to understand. For people inside, it's very often hard to understand quite uh, how this is done. But you know, where do you get the numbers from? Why is this a sensitive point on the back benches? Um, that, that, unless you're really quite immersed into it and understand the cultures of the particular political parties in power, um, those points can easily get missed. And David, just before uh, I, I move away from you, Owen has asked if there are any books you would particularly recommend that you read <laughs> uh, as useful and interesting to help prepare to be a minister. We'll allow you to come back to well, I was, I was, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I did read, I mean, as I say, it was sort of set in the 70s, but Gerald Kaufman's book was, 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 was pretty good. I think sort of subsequently, actually particularly talking about major projects, some of the stuff that Michael Barber has written, I would definitely, you know, read his stuff. Um, uh, we will put further done. recommendations in the show notes. Yes, I, I'm sure you can come up with. I, I'm sure no, no, you can come you. up with more. Um, and I know it's a bit hackneyed, but after I became a, a minister, first I did rewatch all of Yes Minister. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite helpful. So you could recognise when people were using the script. Um, Salma, so we had sorry major projects, ministerial language, and what people misunderstand about government. Um, so I, I think I can make this quite brief. Uh, major projects, yes, absolutely. And as uh, David said, it's about driving the culture of leadership when you're, when you're doing that, as opposed to thinking about you know, how to deliver a project because there are lots of expert people who are doing that. But I think that would probably, probably be quite welcome. Um, what the people on the outside misunderstand, uh, that it's uh, probably cock up, not conspiracy. <laughs> Um, you know, you can never, people always try and rationalise something that's gone wrong and it's like, yeah, no, someone's just messed that up. Mm. Um, nothing else to it. Um, government information office and, and language. This is a really interesting one because sometimes I look back at some of the speeches that I drafted or, you know, press notices that went out and I think, God, my grammar was shocking, <laughs> you know, because you're doing things at speed and you think, why does that make sense? It just doesn't. Um, I think the civil service should absolutely have a standard of language. I think there is an issue because at the moment there is, the bear, there is this, this uh, trend, I mean, it's not quite a trend, but a trend for wanting to use inclusive language and things like that. And I think that sort of does sort of muddy what you think is clear language, I think. Um, but that is set against uh, political language, which is essentially the language of marketing, which has no rules whatsoever. So I think we have to make certain allowances for the fact that politicians also have to sell and they have to sell policy. And so it might be a slight departure from the clarity. Oh, oh, foot in mouth. Oh, well, no, no one can help. <laughs> no one can help a minister with that. They're just going to have to learn to be a bit more on top of their brief, I'm afraid. But I do, I do think the question of language, particularly government language, is it? Is an interesting one in how one keeps to a certain standard of communication. So on that one, so I just had you know, social media, of course, is now yeah. much more unforgiving, and yeah, you know, ministers. I mean, even since I stopped, you know, we, being a minister, you know, we've had Times Radio, GB News, Talk TV. You know, there's another whole set of interviews for ministers to muck up. <laughs> um, so, so it becomes harder. You've also seen, I think, that sort of blurring, and particularly with the with the on the social media where the, the government commentary, mm. the boundary between what's government, what's political, has become, I'm being polite, blurred, but you see some of the stuff you read coming out of the government information, so you hang on a minute, that is not government, that is very, very party political. I think we're seeing more of that, and I think that's driven by the immediacy of social media, because you don't have the checks and balances in a way that you once would have done. 
And that worries me. And I think it puts the, the, the comms folk in government under serious pressure. But again, the civil service doesn't seem to me now to have the authority to say, no, you cannot do that. That is not appropriate for the government machine to be pushing that stuff out. Um, so I, I think that's another watch point for the IFG, because I, I think that is, you can see that erosion. Okay, we're going to have to draw this to a close, so I'm going to go very quickly back through the panel, letting Tim answer any of those questions if he wanted to, but also, and he's not going to get away with not answering <laughs> this one, although he might think that he would. <laughs> what is the one thing that you wish you'd known before you started working in government? So we're going to go back to, to, uh, to finish off. Um, <laughs> I was a civil servant for about five years a, a, a while ago. I guess, I think... <sighs> Maybe this, I've been out for a few years, but how much is done in writing? I hadn't fully appreciated it, and it has changed. We wrote a report last year about WhatsApp. It's a form of writing, but it's different. But I remember being astonished that ministers wrote letters to each other in, when I joined the civil service in 2013. I was like, <laughs> what is going on? You know, I'm, I'm, well, or rather, I wrote the letter from um, uh, Minister A to Minister B, and their private office, office tidied it up. So just the amount of paperwork and the amount of sort of process that happens was really took me took me by surprise and yes it has changed and a lot of stuff is done on WhatsApp and so on and so forth nowadays but that process is there for a reason but is there a way of making it sort of work for people rather than being solely bureaucratic I think. Summer um, I wish I'd asked better questions about the structure at the beginning because it took me a long time to understand the mechanisms of government and I wish I'd known them sooner and then I think I would have prevented myself from myself, not my minister, from making certain mistakes about trying to get things done and understood understood better how to get things delivered. Yeah. So if there was a culture where it was okay to ask those if questions, if it was okay to ask those <laughs> questions, <laughs> you see where we're going with this, Philip. Yeah. I, mean, I think over the course of quite a long career, working out that to be a good civil servant, you needed to be very sharp politically with a small p because you needed to be able to locate where ministers were at in their political world. And I, um, I, that wasn't in the sort of learning that you, you get to learn loads of other stuff, but that, that you sort of uh, accrued over time. And I think that, that understanding, but also the understanding actually of how this system functions, the constitutional, the rest of it, I think the, there is, a, when you, again, you're looking at learning the civil service, I think he's poor on that, and there should be a lot more of that, and it should be a lot earlier in people's career. Is in, in order to support ministers, ultimately you need to understand the context in which, which they're operating without turning that small people political into a big P political. Same yeah, it's a struggle. I, mean, I, sort of, I wish I'd known that referendums were a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite what you're, what you're after. Yeah. Um, well, maybe it is. <laughs> um, maybe it is, actually. <laughs> And, um, and government would be an awful lot easier without them. So um, maybe that. I, I think. I think in a way, I wish you know that you can achieve a lot actually. And I, I, it took me a, a while. Um, you know, they might not necessarily be high-profile things, but you really can get things done. Um, and if you've got a, you know, if you've got a clear policy you want to pursue and it's feasible and. There's no obvious obstacles, or you know, there are ways in which you can overcome those obstacles. And and you know that you have got, if you are a minister, you have got this privilege of a civil service machine that you can make use of. You know that you can get things. And 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 actually, if one of those ideas you come in with on a Monday morning is a good one, 
um, you can see it implemented. And over time, I did more of that. But but you know, I perhaps you know, wish I'd done started that earlier. Brilliant. Well, thank you all very much for joining us today. I hope you'll join me in thanking the panel. And thank you to everyone who's joined us online. I'm sorry I couldn't get to more of your questions, but some excellent questions, and we're giving us plenty of food for thought about what we should be doing with the Academy. So thank you, everyone. <laughs>